To get this out of the way, for anybody who happens to not be aware of the circumstances, yes, this is the second time I've done a rumination on this game, as was requested by Patreon patrons and blah 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 blah. Hopefully this will be a proper remake of the old rumination, but then again, considering the old rumination was back in the old and terrible era, I don't think that's going to be too hard to pull off. One of the things I remember being most surprised by this game, back when I replayed it for the KOTOR lore run several years ago at this point, was how much better it played. By memory, KOTOR 2 was always the one with the better story, but the worst gameplay. But when I actually sat down and played it, that just didn't line up. And the more I went through it, the more I realized that it was basically superior in almost every respect gameplay-wise. Now, yes, obviously, there's significant portions of the last part of the game which just aren't there or don't work right. And the last dungeon is one of the worst last dungeons in video gaming history. And the ending is not. <laughs> I, I, I can't even see endings, really, because, I mean, I can, but at the same time, they're both not. But I don't really blame any of that on Obsidian, except for the fact that they didn't get the change in writing, which they should have. I do like the UI improvements. Things are easier to click and smooth and just generally less of a hassle, less clicks to do stuff in general. Um, I like the fact that they added crafting, which enabled you to make things a little bit more useful. I like the fact that they added skills that are actually relevant, other than, uh, what was it? It was like computer and repair, or no, it was computer and slicing, or something like that in KOTOR 1, and those are like the only skills. But in this one, quite a few skills actually have significant use and allow for multiple paths throughout the game, and that's really the big thing. It's not so much that the gameplay changes were the fact that they added new skills or tightened up the interface, even though those are things they did. The, for lack of a better way to put it, the level design was just superior throughout the whole thing, and I actually really enjoyed that. I enjoyed the fact that the game felt like a better crafted game overall. I also really like one other thing about KOTOR 2, which is endemic of Obsidian's approach quite a bit, especially with Chris Avalon on board, and that is the conversations as encounters concept. A lot of games, a lot of games, approach conversations as something you do to push the story forward, something to do to get exposition across, or something to do to establish a particular character beat, you know, or a story beat, excuse me, which can be a character beat. In this case, several conversations are treated as boss encounters themselves, as if the, the key is to pay attention to what they're saying and say it in the right way to unlock the right conversations, to unlock new information, and so forth and so on. I mean, you can spend like a solid ten minutes just chatting with the HK-50 at the beginning of this game. Not not repeating dialogue, just going through his tree and basically slowly working your way out, out, out and through his logic and outsmarting him, and thus getting more information and more understanding of what's going on as a consequence. And in an RPG, a lot of the times the story is the reward, so being rewarded with doing well at conversations with more story... I mean, do I need to add anything else to that? <sighs> Now, I don't actually have much else to say about the gameplay side of things here, because mostly it's KOTOR 1, but better. The level design is better. The approach to the fact that there's, you know, the class change mechanic, that's better. The fact that you can influence your companions to change their uh, alignment, which is actually gameplay and story integration, better. The fact that the entire fact that you're, the way you level and move your way through the game as a gameplay and story integration thing, as well as the fact that it enables you to change up your own style of play and can go into the prestige classes and can go past level 20, and the fact that there's a lot more feeds, which are a lot more useful, better. 
Um, the fact that areas generally feel more polished and have more interactions, more stuff to do, better. Like, you get my point, right? Aside from a few notable flaws, basically all of which are at the end of the game, the game just feels like someone sat down with KOTOR 1's engine and said, all right, let's make an expansion of this, and then did. Now, that probably sounds like an insult, but I absolutely do not mean it as one. As I've said before, I'm a big believer in expansion effect and the fact that once you already have the core elements of a game made, making the sequel to that or making the expansion to that it, it gives you the opportunity to polish everything. Starcraft to Brood War, just to use the most classic example I can think of, but also Neverwinter Nights 1 to Hordes of the Underdark, to use another direct example, and a more Bioware-centric one. You know, you have that chance to improve things, and that's what this feels like. I also kind of like how the tutorial has you playing as T3, working your way through the Evan Hawk, which not only serves as a nice indicator of what's happened since the first game, and quite a bit of foreshadowing happens in that section, but also gives you insight into all the ways that the game plays if you happen to not be aware of what you're doing, or indeed even if you are, because there is still some new things that you can learn, like um, the the insta-bashing on, on locks or uh, uh, chests, I don't know what to call them, containers that are locked, which also leads to broken material, which can also lead to crashing. Now, yes, I know that as T3, you can't instant unlock it like you can with the lightsaber later on, but I just bring that up because it's also related. I didn't want to mention it separately. This game is a deconstruction, and I've already talked before about how I tend to enjoy deconstructions in general, probably at least partially because usually deconstructions tend to be well-crafted, because... In order to do a good deconstruction, you have to have a significant understanding of what it is you're deconstructing. It's the same concept as a good parody. Good parody can only come from a genuine understanding and love of the target thing that you are parodying. Thus, good parody does not come across as spiteful or bitter any more than a good deconstruction comes across as something that is insulting or spitting on the genre or or, or concept or topic or setting or whatever, that it is deconstructing. Make sense? And that's KOTOR 2. I've actually seen several people be like, ah, oh, Chris Avalon hates Star Wars, and I've looked into that myself, and no, he doesn't. <laughs> Avalon himself has said many times that he loves Star Wars, that he really enjoys Star Wars. It's just that certain aspects of Star Wars drive him batty. And that applies to all of us, doesn't it? Even before The Last Jedi came out, plenty of Star Wars fans had aspects of Star Wars that it's like, Oh my god, why is that a thing? Or why does this work this way? You know? I mean, as I pointed out, I spent like 40 minutes at the beginning of the GoTor lore run talking about this. As I pointed out, we don't even have, didn't even have a defined definition, a concrete definition for what the Force was. And so we had multiple different interpretations of the Force, depending on authors, which led to multiple different contradicting factors with, throughout Star Wars. Oh, sorry. Speaking of which, this is probably a good time to mention that, uh, obviously, this game can't exist in a complete vacuum because it has to acknowledge KOTOR 1, but for the most part, I'm going to be mostly just considering this game when it comes to this rumination. Two big reasons for that. First of all, because TOR uh, kind of went off and did its own thing. Let's just be honest about that. And TOR... Eh, I don't dislike Tor as much as some people do, and there's actually quite quite a few aspects of Tor that I absolutely love. I mean, the Agent storyline is amazing. Sith Warrior, Sith Inquisitor, <clears throat> Bounty Hunter's even good. But the point being... What about evil? The point being that Tor really just kind of throws most of KOTOR 1 
Uh, well, no, most of KOTOR 2 and some of KOTOR 1 out the window. So I can't really keep TOR in mind when it comes to discussing KOTOR 2. I have to keep KOTOR 1 in mind when discussing KOTOR 2, but I can't really keep in mind most of the rest of Star Wars. The gap between this and the next significant event, which is probably Bane, really, is so huge as to be almost meaningless. And the very idea of trying to acknowledge some of the things that I'll be talking about later doesn't really apply given the circumstances. This is also Star Wars, where things happen 30,000 years apart from each other. So, whatever. <laughs> Let's talk about HK-50. HK-50 is actually... So, I'm going to be kind of following a trend here as I go through this rumination. I'm going to go patterns. And HK-50 is... The best place to start, I think, or the HK-50s, I suppose, is a better way to put that, because the droids are furniture. Now, this is something I've been pointing out for years, and something that has been an aspect of Star Wars mythos for years, for a very long time. Let's be honest with ourselves. Other than 3PO and R2, how many of us really noticed any of the droids in the original trilogy? And there were many. Many, many droids, mostly in the background. Now, if I sat down and said, oh, do you remember Gunk, 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 then you probably know who I'm talking about. But the point is, in character and out of character, the droids were designed to be one thing, background noise. This kind of naturally led into the concept of the droids themselves in-universe being the servant class. Now, if you don't know, understand what I mean by that, there's a difference between a servant, which is someone who it's like, hey, I really need you to do this, oh, sir, sort of thing, boss, and a servant class, where it's actually considered inappropriate to acknowledge their existence. That the best servant class is someone who is basically invisible, can m maneuver through things so that other people don't even have to acknowledge that they exist. And that's messed up, but that's what the droid's purpose is, to fulfill that function. HK-50 is the perfect viewpoint of this idea. The fact that the first 50 we encounter was able to almost effortlessly completely maneuver his way through the entirety of the Paragus mining facility and engineer all of the events that happened throughout it is, is almost laughable when you think about it because most people wouldn't have been able to accomplish that of relatively similar skill level. But HK did because he's a droid. Nobody really pays that much attention to droids. In fact... One of the, the, the little audio recordings that really struck my attention as I was going back through Paragus was the guy who says, oh my god, those droids are, are getting weird. I, I need to get some kind of defense against them. And the other guy says, dude, they're droids. You're crazy. Like I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but the very idea that the droids might actually be a threat, might be something you have to consider, was something that was considered outlandish. And this is normal for the Star Wars universe. This is also even more horrifying when you consider droid effect, which is something that T3 has obviously undergone over the course of the previous game up until this game, the point where T3 can now be considered an independent sentient sapient life form. This is also interesting considering 47 definitely underwent droid effect, and HK-47, I mean. And so, of course, did Goto, but we'll talk about Goto later. We'll talk about HK-47 now, because he's like, Hey, it's me, I'm HK-47, what's up? He's mostly here because everyone loved him from the first game, but let's be honest, his inclusion is not exactly a negative, is it? The only thing I have to say about him is that he himself serves an interesting contrast to the 50s, especially when you go after the, the production facility. Because the 50s themselves are... How do I put this? How many of you guys have ever gone trick-or-treating for Halloween? Hear me out, I swear I'm going somewhere with this. 
I used to know a couple of kids who would just try to get as much candy as possible. They wanted the heaviest bag possible, so they had as much candy to last as long as possible. Now, I stress the way I said that because it wasn't really about the quality. You know, they were the kind of kids who would get tons and tons of those little rolls of those mint things or the really crap chocolates, you know, like the generic chocolate bars that have really awful, bad-tasting chocolate in them, or, you know, the... (laughs) The, I, don't, I, don't even, I don't want to step on anyone's candy preferences here, so I should probably stop. But you get my point, right? So they would get, they would come up and be like, yeah, look at all this candy I got. And I got a lot less because I was running through the neighborhood, paying attention to what the other kids were saying, asking questions of them, and figuring out which houses were giving out what so I could spend my time, because we had limited time. It was actually a scheduled thing back when I was a kid. I don't know if it is this day, nowadays. So I was like, okay, hit that house, that house, that house, that house, and then go over to that house, and then we can hit whatever if we have any time left. So I would have the candies I really wanted. Now, this is functionally the difference between HK50 and HK47. HK50s love killing. <laughs> in fact, they basically want to kill everyone in the galaxy. And their, their infiltration as protocol droids is also kind of helping to add to this because all they're doing is mistranslating, leading to conflict, leading to war, leading to more and more death. Whereas the HK-47 enjoys the art of killing, finding the most precise, beautific, most pre- just uh, most creative, there we go, that's the word I want to use, the most creative possible method that they can use to kill someone. Now this leads me into what's probably going to sound like a strange segue. I want to talk about Atten next. Now, Atten is, of course, a typical fully fleshed out Obsidian character. He's a Force-sensitive who isn't fully aware of that, but is also on some subconscious level conscious of that, so that he is afraid of himself, but also hates the mind-control thing, and hates people trying to affect others, and so he turns his hatred into a tool so he can torture and murder Jedi en masse in service of Revan's cause, and blah, 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 blah. I don't have anything to say about any of that. He's cool. I'll, I do prefer Atten to Karth, by the way, for anybody curious. Although I, I'm actually one of those few strange weirdos who actually likes Karth and Assy, so whatever. What I really want to talk about is actually the fact that he is a nice perspective character for a non-Force user. Now, I know that sounds strange because he is a Force user. He is Force-sensitive. But what I mean by that is his perspective is a perfect insight into that exact flaw, the Jedi flaw. Now, I usually like to relate this to Harry Potter more than anything else because... Harry Potter, actually, this is a major plot point in Harry Potter, and Harry Potter takes it and runs with it extensively. The idea that, well, I have access to magic, and so I'm going to let all my other skills atrophy. It's the crutch. I mean, okay, I actually have a crutch right over there for emergencies, just in case. But back when I used it, one of the biggest things that everyone told me, you know, all the medical professionals told me is, use it when you need it, not when you don't. You don't want to develop a dependency on it being there that will atrophy your legs and they won't heal properly. So obviously I had to use it when my leg was physically incapable of supporting me. But when it started to heal, I had to start weaning myself off of that crutch, right? Same general concept. You lean on that too hard and the Jedi, well, become a little bit force-blind, don't they? One of the things I actually like quite a bit about Tor is the fact that there are quite a few Sith and Jedi who are force-blind. And again, when I say force-blind, I mean they are blinded by the force. They are so, yes, I have the power, phenomenal cosmic power, and oh, you shot me with a blaster, thud. Um, 
And of course, Atten goes into depth about this, details about how Force users in general completely underestimate the mundane people. And I really enjoy that. It's actually something that I wish Star Wars would do more of because, well, to be perfectly blunt, other aspects of Star Wars don't actually fully agree on this. There are some aspects in some parts of Star Wars, depending on the writer, that say that Jedi Force users in general are just flat-out superior in every way. Like, the Force running through them just basically elevates all of their stats up. So they are, in fact, superior. And that they just can effortlessly blow their way through mundanes with, with, with ease. And then other kind of things kind of indicate how strong and capable non-Force users can be under the right circumstances. Everyone disagrees with that. But within the confines of KOTOR 2, you see kind of why I'm trying to focus just on this game, in the confines of this, it's a good insight into that mentality. If I'm being honest, I don't want to call this a lorium because no one would understand this lorium, but I think of it mentally as the Skywalker mentality. Hear me out. See, Luke especially in the better books, and I'm just going to say it that way, got really good at not relying on the Force. Oh, he used it. But one of my favorite sections was when, you could probably guess where this is, where he has access to the Force, it's just not going to help him because he's on a base that's being overrun by tons and tons of people who are all trying to kill him, and he's trying to get out into a ship, into space, when they control the docking clamps, and he's just like, okay, what am I going to do? And he manages to think his way through the situation basically without using the Force. I mean, the Force is still present, but he thinks about it. Luke is a tool user. Luke is, is a creative, innovative, cunning person. And so he is able to maneuver his way dynamically through a situation rather than just leaning on the Force. Now, part of that is probably because Luke himself didn't receive Force training until relatively late into his life. Thus, he was already used to learning how to fly and learning how to use a blaster and being good with tools and all that kind of stuff before he decided to actually start being a Force user. Just, just my opinion on that. But that's Atten's perspective and what he adds to KOTOR 2. The idea of the mundanes and how they can still be an influence in a setting so filled with the Force. Speaking of which, that's probably a good time to talk about Baudur. Now, I both like and dislike him as a character. The actor for him is wonderfully creepy. <laughs> like, I remember my first time playing and thinking, God, who's the voice director for that guy? I mean, it's obviously the same voice director for everyone else. But then the more it went on, the more it became clear that that was what he was being directed to do, that he, he was doing this kind of uneasy elongated whisper of barely ever having any emotion in anything that he says as he constantly... It was just terrifying in its own right. But of course, Baudur is also not a Force user. Yes, I know that he can be made a Jedi, just like Atten can. But I don't mean him as the same perspective as Atten. Cleverly enough, Baudur serves a different perspective. The perspective of the non-warrior's influence on the war. Far too often, fiction and real life tend to place emphasis on the generals and the soldiers when it comes to war. Now, that's obvious why. It's the same reason that directors and actors get so much emphasis when it comes to movie making. But as anybody will tell you, if you just had directors and actors, you wouldn't have much of a movie. And if you just had generals and soldiers, you wouldn't have much of a war. There is so much else and so much of an infrastructure and support network that goes into supporting the frontline efforts... And I like that Baudur is being used to acknowledge and emphasize that, something that is sadly done very rarely in Star Wars in general. The idea of the engineer, 
the 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 fix-it man, the inventor, whose contributions had a fairly significant and large-scale effect on the Mandalorian War and arguably on all of the events in KOTOR 1 and KOTOR 2. Remember, a lot of what happened between Nihilus and the exile and the banishment and the creation of the whole I will now create this new Sith Empire and rule on high, all of that kind of came down to Baudur and his device and his implementation of it. Now, I'm not saying that he deserves soul credit, just like I'm not saying the director receives soul credit, but you can kind of see how his inclusion into the equation is nice additive perspective that we usually don't get. And the funny thing is, Baudur is absolutely drowned with guilt for what he did, to the point of basically being suicidal. In fact, he was actually supposed to sacrifice himself on uh, Tilo Station? I can't actually think of the proper name of the place. In order to, you know, help save the crew, and that's why he basically doesn't show up in the final dungeon, which is just terrible. Anyways, now, before I continue, I want to take a, a little segue here and go talk about some of the more side characters, characters I have a lot less to talk about, like Mira, for example. Mira, Hanhar, and Goto. Now, <laughs> I really hope you're paying attention, because I'm doing this in threes on purpose. Um, HK50, Atten, and Baudur will, were all good perspectives on the non-Force users and how the non-Force users fit within the galaxy. The droid, the clever tool user, the, the innovative, the spy, etc., and of course the engineer. Mira, Hanhar, and Goto are similarly three perspectives on a completely different problem. The state of the galaxy. Now, Mira is a good person, relatively speaking. She overall is inclined towards being nice. She prefers to bring people in alive. She doesn't resort to deception unless she has to. She doesn't resort to enslavement unless she has to. And you're kind of picking, you're picking up on this already, because Mira is someone who is, well, exactly what you'd get if you put someone who their nature is to be a decent person in an unpleasant setting which is kind of what Star Wars is in general, but especially the hut space. She is someone who is like, well, I'd like to help that person out, but if I do so, horrible things will happen. So I'll just not be horrible to them. Because in many respects, especially in hut space, being not horrifically evil is about as good as you can get. But Mira herself, in addition to these things, is ultimately probably the best perspective on the victim of the, of the state of the galaxy. Because the whole galaxy, as I'm going to be talking about over these next three characters, is broken. This is actually one of my biggest regrets about KOTOR 2, because I've talked about this so many times, as ever, I would love to hear other thoughts on this, because this game is a fairly interpretive game, so a lot of these things are not written stone. In fact, I want to make this clear. Nothing I say during this rumination is like a hard written stone thing. This is just my own thoughts and interpretations. Uh, my own ruminations, you might call it. This is, the galaxy is so fundamentally wrong as of KOTOR 2. And when I say wrong, I mean like a sickness, like a disease. And what's funny is they never say exactly why. It could just be the nature of the galaxy in general. It could be a byproduct of a lot of recent events. You know, I mean, we, we just got slammed back to back to back by like three wars by the time KOTOR 2 rolls around. Uh, galactic wars, I might add. Uh, this could be as a consequence of the nature of the Force and what the Force is and the fact that the Force currently has two gaping holes walking around in it, which is 
causing issues and destabilizing the equation. It could be because the balance between the light and the dark side is offset, which could either mean that the two are not equal or the dark side is present at all, depending on your interpretation of the force. I talked about that earlier. So no matter how you look at it, as it is very clear that the intent of KOTOR 2 was that the galaxy is wrong. And I talked about this during my last rumination, I believe. I'm not really mentioning it as much this time because one of the recurrent things, themes of this game is how everyone is broken to some extent or another. HK50 is ultimately a flawed counterpart, which is at best a bullet point syndrome of HK47. Uh, I know that's a weird place to start, but you know, I already talked about him, so whatever. Atten, well, it's very obvious how and why he's broken. He's someone who's so driven by self-loathing and at the same time legitimately hates the Jedi and the Sith for what they are and what they do, despite his own status within both organizations. Then we have Baudur, someone who is arguably one of the most broken people within this game. A simple engineer who was a little antisocial type, had very strong social uh, loyalty and... Lo and uh, friendship connections to the few people he actually bonded with, and ended up basically being a mass murderer. And of course, Mira, as I already mentioned, is someone who is trying her best to be a decent person and is constantly being told through circumstance and through the environment she's in that she can't be, which of course leads me to Hanhar. I don't even think I need to explain how Hanhar is broken. It's so obvious it's, it's just kind of a duh. But one of the things I like most about him is that he, as a beast, is so bound by what is effectively a cultural instinct, so built into him, that he cannot bypass it. All he can do is endure it. But he is someone who fundamentally believes in his own particular mentality, the killing, the violence, and the freedom of choice, which you can actually help him to really embrace if you choose to. I prefer not to, because why in God's name would I want Hanhar in my party? But the fact remains. Hanhar's the guy who was taken captive to be a slave and turned it into a sport for slowly torture, torturing and killing all the people who enslaved him. Now, they deserved it, but the fact of the matter remains, that's a good insight into Hanhar in particular. Now, you might say, well, what does he have to do with the state of the galaxy? He is a representative of the state of the galaxy, the very idea of someone who is, let's put it as bluntly as we can, part of the problem. He is someone who doesn't care about politics, who doesn't care about culture, who doesn't care about society, doesn't care about honor or decency or just about anything intangible, really, although he does have a few intangible things still left in him, that cultural instinct I mentioned, his desire to be part of the afterlife and blah, blah, blah. But I bring this up because he is one of, people like him are one of the reasons why the galaxy is in such a sad state of affairs. In his case, it's, it's not exactly because he doesn't take the long view so much as he just doesn't care about the long view. But if you get a society of people who all only care about themselves or tomorrow rather than the people around them and the next 50 years, you're going to have a problem. I'm sorry. I, I, I'm not trying to be preachy here. This is a proven fact. We have plenty of societies in real life history which have completely dissolved as a consequence of not acknowledging these two basic facts. No, I'm not saying you have to not care about the individual. No, I'm not saying you don't have to care about the now. Come on, guys. Let's not get into that. Rather, Hanhar instead is, like I said, a perspective on... Well, it's not my problem. Why would I care? Why would I give a damn? You know what I really like doing? 
slowly peeling the ribs out one by one and watching them scream. But then the screams get all distorted with blood. It's it's so disappointing. So then i got to grab his friend who's sitting right there next to him and start working on him instead. That's Hanhar. That may be the most disturbing thing I've ever said on my show anyways. Which, of course, brings me to Goto. Now, <laughs> Goto is arguably also a, a mentality on Nobody Notices the Droid thing. In fact... One of the biggest reasons that's implied why Goto was so effortlessly able to seize power was because no one gave a crap about him. And he had access to a wealth of information about finances and, well, frankly, had a very good understanding of finances in general. He was, to put it as simply and bluntly as I can, a very good financier. And someone who is a very good financier can be really good at just about any business adventure they wish to be from a purely financial perspective. He obviously failed because he didn't properly think the logic of the situation through regarding what he would do and how the bounty hunters would react. And Basically, he screwed up constantly because, in his own broken way, he was incapable of actually understanding illogical behavior. He assumed everyone would always behave in what he considered to be the most logical path forward, and he was wrong in every way constantly. This, led, this leads to a lot of problems throughout the course of the game, including the, the hunt for you, the exile, the hunt for the other Jedi Masters, <clears throat> the destruction of his, his yacht, the fact that he basically loses a decent chunk of his criminal empire. You know, All of that is being caused by the fact that he was just presuming everyone would logically behave in the same way that he would. I mean, right? <coughs> oh, excuse me. I'm broken too, apparently. I mean, I am a bad leg. My point, though, being that Goto, of course, is... Goto is the biggest person without the, within this entire game, actually, uh, who is trying to fix the problem. He's looking at the state of the galaxy and saying, okay, this is wrong. What in the hell? This is completely unacceptable. Goto, for all of the uh, shade... <coughs> <coughs> For all of the shade I hear thrown at him, Goto is definitely one of the better insights into exactly how messed up the state of the galaxy is, because he is looking at things on a macroscopic scale. Whereas most of the people around him aren't even bothering to. Arguably, the only other one really looking at the macroscopic scale is Kreia, but we're not talking about her yet. So Goto, he's trying to fix the problem. And his brokenness is obvious. He was told... Do A, do B. Well, but these are mutually exclusive. And so we have Goto as a consequence. What I like best about him is he is neither good nor evil. He is truly amoral. Someone who simply does not care in any sense about the very concept of ethics or morality. He is simply trying to fix the problem. And killing people or destroying people or working through a criminal organization to do that? I mean, why not? It is a tool in his disposal. Why wouldn't he use it? Oh, what's that? It's a horribly evil tool? Why does that matter? That's Goto's perspective right there. I keep saying Goto because that's how I want to say it. I, I, know, it's, I know it's Goto. I know. I'm sorry. The state of the galaxy itself, as I mentioned, is very broken. Again, Goto himself gives the best insight on this. In fact, I, I'll, I will always uh, remember his speech about Basically, his, his theory is that the reason the galaxy is so broken is because of the more mundane matters that have been happening. Remember, war, bam, war, bam, kind of a war, bam. You know, 
Speaking specifically of the Mandalorians, Revan, and then Malak, just bam, 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 one after the other. And each one of these things caused a lot of damage and caused a lot of infrastructure problems. He's even one of the best examples of the Malak mentality, because he states flat out that Malak would just have no subtlety, no intellect, just crudely crushing all opposition, regardless of the cost, whereas Revan was trying to conquer and actually claim and take territories that would be then useful and, and be intact. In you know, the, I myself have said many, many times that it's between the Revan mentality of conquest and the Malak mentality of conquest. A lot of that comes from this game and Goto's own thoughts on this. But he also mentions, well, the fact that there's economic tr tr crises that are just developing and actually getting worse day by day, and that there are political factions all over the place that are dis that are falling apart. We do get to see one aspect of this with uh, Andor, or Andoron, excuse me, not Andor. Andor. Andor's a different thing. With Andoron, with Talia and Vaklu. Now, what I love best about this is Talia and Vaklu, it's the light side and the dark side choices obvious. But what I like most about that is that Talia isn't necessarily good, and Vaklu isn't necessarily evil. Vaklu is actually quite honorable and decent of a person, and if you work with him, he keeps to his word and makes every effort to try and accommodate you and, your, and whatever it is you want as a consequence of you helping him rise to power. He also it isn't just a power-hungry, I want to rule on high assaults, and he's someone who legitimately believes in Andor and wants the best for its people. Now, you might say, well, that could still be evil, and you're right, but there's no malice there, no greed, and no inherent selfishness. None of the usual evil, you know, evil uh, mentalities are in him. By contrast, Talia doesn't really have the high ground here, morally speaking. She could argue that she is the, you know, the, the intended ruler, but what the hell does that mean, morally or ethically? That's a political term, not a term for reality. So she is, she doesn't, she is more than willing to go through untoward things in order to make things happen and is basically as obstinate as possible at almost every step of the way. Ultimately only finally going along with things because she has no real choice in the matter. This, in my opinion, is the best peek through the window into the state of the galaxy in Kotor 2 on Onderon. Because we see that two factions who are both have their own sides and both have their own legitimate concerns and both have their own legitimate people who actually agree with each other are fighting each other to the death over scraps of what's left after the the the, the mess that has been created by the last three wars I just mentioned. So again, even if the force is not involved at all, this is a very clear indicator of just how messed up the state of the galaxy is right now. If anything, this is one of the reasons why I personally lament KOTOR 3 I mean, we all lament KOTOR 3, let's just be honest about that. But what I mean by that is I lament KOTOR because we'll never follow through on this idea. The setting being wrong and trying to fix that, trying to correct that, trying to move people and organizations and economic concepts and the force into a state where everything is more balanced and more in line with itself so we can eventually get to, you know, the future where things are not horribly broken. Anyways... So I think that's it for characters. No, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. I thought about making it a joke of just not mentioning Candorous Ordo. Or, or, I really did. But <laughs> I realized that a lot of people probably wouldn't get that. If you get it, you're awesome. I just want you to know that. Because <laughs> you've been around for a while. So Candorous is probably the least broken character here uh, of the various main characters who actually join you. He is someone who's kind of already gone through his hurdles. 
ultimately, all Candrus is is an old man who doesn't really know what he believes in anymore. That he is obviously someone who wants the best for the Mandalorians. He wants them to be the best culture and the best society they can be, but he's not really sure what that actually means. Like, those are nice, fancy terms, but all he can think of is the, the way things used to be and how that didn't work. Candorous is living proof of the fact that you can't lean too heavily on either the tangible or the intangible side of the equation. Now, we know from, from many other things what the tangible side is, but actually the Mandalorians were the intangible side. They didn't care about survival. They didn't care about existing. They didn't care about conquest or power or resources. What the Mandalorians cared about was the battle, the glory, the be able to, to fight and having the honor of fulfilling their ambition of becoming one of the most powerful forces in the galaxy and having the greatest conquest that they possibly could. This is the entire reason why they smashed the Republic in such a way as to specifically goad them into a fight, because they had to fight the biggest, strongest thing around. And they lost. And they lost so hard that they technically never recovered from this, depending on how you think of that and which timeline you're using. So let's just not get into that right now. But I bring this up because this is what I mean. They focused on the intangible to an extreme and effectively lost the tangible. Oh, sure, Mandalorians survived and would continue to survive in some extent or another for many, many thousands of years. But the fact remains that the Mandalorians as a culture and as a people were annihilated. That what is going forward from this point on will be a scarred husk of what it used to be because they leaned so hard on one side of the equation. Now, this also is very interesting because if you pay attention to everything that, that Mandalore says in this game... By the way, was anyone at all like, deceived by the fact that he didn't say his name. Because the same voice actor, come on! Anyways. This is most easily shown by the way he talks and preaches of his policies to others. That honor and duty and responsibility are important, but to the point of pragmatism. The idea that they need to also have you know, the ability to think their way through things with regards to today and tomorrow, and to, to maintain their soul, for lack of a better way to put it, in doing so. A more balanced approach, if you will. Now, what I find most interesting, and I don't want to jump ahead in my notes here, but if anything, I've mentioned how I've been pairing up characters. Candorous doesn't really fit with anybody, except Kreia. I'll talk more about her later, though. I really want to save her for last. Let's rewind a bit and talk about Mikal, or Michael, or whatever the hell his damn name is. I can't even remember it, because he's the Disciple and I hate him. Does anybody like the Disciple? Honest question. <laughs> the Disciple is the only reason I can't say I like every party member in this game. Because even Hanhar is well-written. I'll never use him ever, but at least he's well-written, right? This is one of the reasons I say that it's so few games I have where I actually legitimately love every party member, because it's, it's a rare thing. There's usually at least one exception. Michael. Let's call him just the Disciple. He is actually still an interesting perspective. See, Michael... Brianna and Visus Mar are the Jedi perspectives. Again, bundling all these groups together. But he is, I mean, he is technically a Jedi. He is certainly Force-sensitive. He underwent Jedi training. But he's really more of a researcher-slash-soldier than he is anything else. He is a loyal member of the Republic and obviously wants to do the best he can for the betterment of mankind. He's obviously a good guy. And if I were to, to align these people, I'd probably say Michael is probably the most light side Visus is the most neutral, and uh, Brianna is the most dark side. Oh, I'll explain that. Don't 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 worry. But I I, I mentioned that because that's not the parallel I'm drawing here. 
it's rather the parallel, once again, of perspective on the Jedi as an order, as an organization, not the Force. This isn't about the Force. This is about the units of organization. Um, the Jedi Order is horribly flawed. I think we can all agree on this. And basically all of the Jedi Orders throughout Star Wars fiction, at least in the EU, have all been horribly flawed. It's just varying which flaws them to have. In his case, he saw, again, the ground-level perspective of exactly how flawed it is from, well, basically as one of the ants in the pile is the way I want to phrase that. He wasn't anyone special. He wasn't singled out. He was just another guy who, once they finished their training, well, they basically didn't have enough people to do anything with this, so they just kind of tossed him out like, here you go, bye, figure it out. Room and board is done, go away, you know. <laughs> and so he ended up working for the Republic to make ends meet. But I mention this because he himself brings up quite a few times the inherent flaws in the system. Now, it's worth noting that he doesn't know exactly what those flaws are, mostly because of lack of experience and specific understanding, but the flaws are self-apparent. As he himself says, the fact that so many Jedi so regularly go to the dark side, from the Order specifically, is indicative. There's got to be some kind of messed up situation here. And, of course, this leads me to talking about Brianna. Although, actually, I should probably talk... Yeah... The order in which I want to discuss these is weird, because all three of these kind of blend over each other quite a bit, as is typical for Obsidian characters. Let's go and talk about Brianna next, because she's the next one I really jotted my notes down about. Brianna is, of course, a typical Jedi. Now, I know what you're thinking. Okay, I'm sorry, what? Remember, she is Force-sensitive, and noticeably so, far more so than most of the other characters. She also is basically forbidden from learning about the Jedi, to use the exact wording and cannot become part of the Order, and cannot learn the ways of the Jedi, and blah, blah, blah. But in every way that is actual, she is the most Jedi Order-like. She is someone who is unique, someone who is distinct from the others, very skilled, very strong, very sure of herself, very emotional. She is someone who lets her emotions ride right out there on her sleeve and has absolutely no problem in trying to express that or use that in virtually every circumstance. Not that I've ever done this, but this helps to make my point. If you start getting in close with Vsauce and then end up shifting over to the Handmaiden, Vsauce Mara is just like, okay, that sucks, but whatever. If you start in getting in good with the Handmaiden and then switch over to Vsauce Mara, the Handmaiden will actually attack, or, depending on the circumstances, basically stop talking to you for the rest of the game. This is what I mean when I say she's the dark side. Because as I've said before, and KOTOR 2 follows this most clearly than, more clearly than most, the dark side is not necessarily evil. It is simply the dark side, the emotional side, the ambitious side, the aggressive side, action, verb, chaos. That's the dark side. And it doesn't necessarily mean bad, evil, wrong, or poison, corrupt, or, or noxious. It instead just means this is the side of change, to simplify it into a single word. Brianna very clearly showcases the idea of a typical Jedi in the fact that she is constantly of the mentality that would adhere to being a dark Jedi, and yet everything she has been taught and trained is restraining her from actually understanding herself or the circumstances that she's in. Hence, a typical Order Jedi. You see, you see the parallel here? Thus, through Brianna, we understand, again, from a personal perspective, what so many Jedi have been going through throughout the Order... Well, in basically all of Star Wars, like I said, the Orders always had issues. The Orders? 
Hors d'oeuvres? The Jedi hors d'oeuvres. Like little lightsaber goes out. Mm, that tastes like self-recrimination. So, <clears throat> this of course also is pretty much entirely the fault of her master, Atris, who is... Well, we're, we're going to pause in this discussion here to talk about Atris because Atris has her own parallel. Eh, let's talk about... Let's, I changed my mind. Let's talk about Visas first. I changed my mind. I know you hate it when I do that. Visas is the neutral one. She's the gray. Now, I know what you're thinking. She's literally the dark side user. You, she starts off as a Sith, and, you have, and, she uses, and she agrees with dark side things all the time. I mean, the Cantina incident? thing is, and just like Rihanna, I don't really agree with that. Visas is very clearly someone who is far more neutral in her perspectives, her mentality, and her personality. She is someone who... Well, actually, I, I could argue that she's a little bit more light side. But the point is but she is someone who understands aggression, power, and use, but at the same time tempers that by not allowing her to go too far into that. She is the cold fish, to put it into simple terms, whereas Brianna is the hot one. Not like that. Um, the flame versus the ice. There we go. I'll put it that way. Visus is someone who also has... It, it, I shouldn't even mention how all three of these characters are broken, because, again, it's fairly self-evident. Visus is probably the most broken character alongside Baudur, in my opinion. These two are kind of dueling it out for me, personally, in my current perspective. I don't remember what I said back in the day, and I don't care. That was like six years ago. What I really want to talk about with regards to Visus, though, is that she is driven by passion and at the same time tempers that at all times with what she knows about the world around her. This is why I call her the neutral, the gray. In fact, I would say Visus Mar is probably one of the better examples of how you can be a good person and use the dark side. Because she does that constantly. She may, in other words, literally be using the dark side, but she is not the dark side typical character. That's the handmaiden. That's Anakin Skywalker which is definitely not Visa's. What I also find interesting, though, is the level of devotion she has to you. I'm just going to comment on this very briefly. All of the characters become devoted to you, and all of them kind of go your way, and you can affect them. And Some hilarious bugs about that can ensue, but I'll talk about that later. But I mention this because Visa's is the most malleable. She's the one who most molds herself to whatever it is you are in your particular through. And that makes the most sense to me, because she is the one who has already had exposure to a wound, and as a consequence, has basically already been shoved into a mold, malleable perspective, so that she will now be malleable to whoever else has that power. It just happens to be you rather than Nihilus. But anyways, let's get out. Let's go on to Atris and the Jedi Masters. See, Atris, Vrook, uh... Oh god, I wrote this down. So I could, There's uh, Atris... Vrook, Zizkael, God, I hope I'm saying that right, and Kern, are the, all four of them, each serve as a different perspective in their own right as to being a Jedi Master, and more importantly, their perspective on the Force itself. See, I mentioned that uh, Michael, Brianna, and Visas are the perspective on the Force users. Atris, Vrook, <sighs> Zizkael, God, I really hope so. I just played this game. And, um, and kind of the perspectives on the actual force itself. Now, Atris, well, he is of... She, wow. <laughs> she is the most obvious in her perspective. She is the flawed master. 
the one who is positively flawed in that she she wants to do good and right and protect the galaxy and save the universe and more or less deliberately causes the Nihilus incident which kills so many Jedi before the game starts. She's also fallen to the dark side in the more or less literal sense of the word and is gone by the time we first meet her and is really gone by the second time we meet her. What I find most interesting about her is that she is, her perspective is so adamantly black and white that she has no idea how to deal with reality because, fun fact, reality is not black and white unless you have an extremely weird vision problem. <laughs> so, I don't mean like color blindness. I mean like if everything was black and white, no gray whatsoever. <clears throat> she is someone who desperately wants to save the galaxy, to help people, to move forward, to, to, to make things better, and makes basically everything worse. She is probably the most archetypal, archetypal? Uh, Jedi Master, Jedi Order Master specifically. Someone who says, this is right and this is wrong. Don't question me. She is, of course, one of the reasons why Brianna is such a problem, as I've mentioned earlier. But again, it is her perspective on the Force that interests me, because she believes the Force is good or bad. The end. And she insists that the good is good, the light is good, and the dark is bad. And that's all there is to her. Quick aside, because I've asked this question in Discord several times, and this has actually been a discussion on several streams before, how do you define when she fell to the dark side? Because there's no denying that Brianna did fall to the dark side, in the traditional sense of the word, you know, becoming evil, basically losing herself. And I mention that because... We had a lengthy discussion about it, which really boiled down to the nature of what point you're defining as that. Do you call the beginning of the descent her falling to the dark side, or do you call the end of her descent falling to the dark side? Because I would argue personally that her entire descent began back during the Mandalorian War when the exile left. And by contrast, her descent finished probably about when the exile shows up in KOTOR 2, the first or the second time, one of the two. Take your pick. Either way, just food for thought. Although, fun fact, if you use uh, the sense alignment ability when you first see her, she's red. <laughs> Vrook. Also, I, I, I would be remiss if I didn't say this, because it's one of my favorite quotes from the entire game. It is such a quiet thing to fall, but a far more terrible is to admit it. It's one of my favorite quotes in, like, all of Star Wars. I love that quote. Anyways, <clears throat> Vrook is far more obviously the order master who is wrong. He, his perspective on the Force is very simple. We are right, the end, and the light side is right and the dark side is wrong, but unlike, see, the difference between Vrook and Atris is Atris is more positive, whereas Vrook is more negative. Atris tries to ensure that everything is light, by ensuring that they smash out the dark at every possibility. Whereas Vrook tries to ensure that everything is light by shoving the light into people as much as people. Now, I know that sounds like the inverse of what I just said, but you can kind of see how it isn't based on perspective. She is trying to make the galaxy a better place by deliberately removing the bad. He is trying to make the galaxy a better place by ensuring everything adheres to what he thinks is right. That's why he is the negative perspective on the Force. And I don't have much else to say about him other than, thank God he died. Moving on. Now, Kern, he's actually an interesting one. 
because his perspective on the Force is mostly that of neutrality. He doesn't really think of it things in as black and white terms as either Atris or Vruk does. Like, we could put Atris up here and Vruk up here. Kern would actually probably be closer to the middle, like right down here. The difference is he actually has a brain and understands that life is far more malleable gray thing that is otherwise presented. He understands politics, he understands tactics, he understands uh, nuance, he understands subtlety, and he is someone who ultimately kind of, I'm sorry, he should be over here, he is ultimately someone who understands the that the Force has to have multiple shades and perspectives in order to be the kind of thing that allows the galaxy to keep running. Catch to this is the fact that he still doesn't really care about the morality of the situation all that much. He is ultimately really more of a neutral than a positive or a negative. Vrook, uh, it's not very Vrook, Vern, God, <laughs> entire thing, not Brooks, entire thing, is that he believes that, well, this is the direction we should go because this is for the overall betterment of the aggregate. Probably the most overall macroscopic viewpoint of the various members throughout the course of the Jedi Order Masters, and the one who is probably keeping in mind the Force as a whole the most amongst the Masters. Which, of course, leads me to Zezkael, which is the last time I'm going to have to say that, thank goodness. Dudeface is someone who is probably the most good. He is someone who believes that there is a distinction between the light side, and yet understands the nuance, just like Kern did. But unlike him... He looks at the situation and says, well, someone who fell to the dark side, that's our fault. Someone who has gone evil, that's on us. We need to do better, and we need to try and make the world a better place. This is how these two contrast each other, because the former is someone who's looking at the galaxy. The latter is someone who's looking at the individual. And both of these allow their particular mindsets of the Force to basically proliferate uh, uh, proliferate? That feels like the wrong word. To to en enable... No, that's still the wrong word. To be the impetus for all of the ways which they interact with those around them. That Zezkael is constantly trying to make things better and trying to help individuals and, and people, whereas you know, uh, Kern is someone who is trying to save an entire planet by ensuring the, the societal level of things. Thus we see the four perspectives of the Force. Now, you'll notice all of these are flawed, which is, of course, very logical for a game like this. One of these perspectives is that the good is right and the dark is bad, and the dark must be eliminated. One is that the good is light and the dark is bad, therefore we need more good. One of these is that there's a shade, there's shades between the good and the dark, but what we need to do for the betterment of the Force is to use the Force on a macroscopic scale. And one of these is shades of gray, microscopic scale. Make sense? This, of course, leads me to talking about the final characters, which I haven't really mentioned before. <sighs> Darth Sion is... I mean, I guess he's technically the most broken character. I mean, right? It'd be kind of hard to argue against that. But I bring him up because Darth Sion is really, in many ways, an allegory for what the dark side can do under extremes. He is arguably the most extreme dark side user within this game. Someone who is being kept together literally just by pain and anger and nothing else, and using the dark side to basically sew himself together. He describes his every existence as, as a non-stop suffering, and he is actually legitimately glad to finally die. What I find most interesting about him is that 
I feel like he never really reached a point where he could allow himself to die until an external force, you, the exile, was able to crack all of the brokenness of his mentality and his flawed psyche in order to get to the actual person that's still left underneath there and be like, look, <laughs> is this really what you want? Probably never even questioned before. Why would he? It was what was natural. And Sion himself actually is astonished at the fact that you as the exile can be offered ultimate power and walk away from it, something he was not able to do. Thus we see Sion is probably the most typical example of, well, of Sith. Because yes, the last three characters that I'm going to be talking about are all indicative of the Sith. Sion is someone who is... I don't want to call him stupid Sith. In fact, I would say none of them are stupid Sith in this game. But he is a typical Sith. You strive to go forward. You, you are all about the self, and you are all about trying to obtain more and to ensure your dominance and power. And there's a reason Sion dominates the hell out of any other individuals or situation which he's in. It is not until he comes to question why he's doing that and the realities of that that he starts to realize that he effectively made an emotional feedback loop in himself which was forcing him forward and making him utterly miserable. This leads, of course, to, well, <laughs> Nihilus. Darth Nihilus. Now, Darth Nihilus has been someone I have absolutely loved talking about many, many times across my career. I'm not going to be able to do him credit here. I've talked about him for like 40 minutes in the, in the lore run alone. Go watch that if you want a more in-depth in analysis. But I'm going to tell you right now is that Darth Nihilus is not a person. This is pr arguably probably the final step of the dark side mentality, the most extreme. He is not a Sith in the strictest sense of the word. It would be more accurate to say that he is what the Sith want to be, not knowing the consequence. This is the ultimate flaw of the Sith mentality. The Sith wants something not realizing what having that will mean. Now, I know that Darth Nihilus is technically not really a dark side user, in the same sense that he's technically not even a force user, or a person, but my point is that the level of power Nihilus has is near absolute. But in a setting like Star Wars, that kind of power has consequence. This is not, Nihilus is not the only example of this, it's worth noting. And when you have that level of power, that consequence effectively pulls you to the point where you can't really enjoy that power anymore. He can literally destroy a world, and all the life on it with a word, and yet he is a constant slavery power that he himself so embodies. He's a walking black hole, a force of nature, if you will. And the really ironic thing is that it has been argued many times, and I agree, that if the exile had not also existed in this, in this setting, that would have been it for Star Wars. The whole setting would have eventually died, either because all the force was ripped out of it, which would prevent life from existing, depending on how you define the force, or he would have gone and killed everyone, and thus the entire galaxy would be de dead and devoid of life. And then he would eventually self-destruct or eat himself or whatever. And that would be the end. Poof! Gone! Thanks for playing. Way to go. Be and that's the really interesting thing about Nihilus. Because he is a truly macroscopic threat. He is the one who is on the, the Onderon, Onderon situation, right? He's the one who is, is attacking Telos. He's the one with a ship. He's the one with a fleet. He is the 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 parallel to Palpatine, except he has nothing to do with Palpatine, if you, if you follow me here. He is the one who presents the galactic threat, whereas Scion prevents the individual threat. And the funny thing is, Nihilus's threat is almost removed at the individual level because of the very fact that you are the exile, which I suppose means this is probably 
a good time to talk about the exile. One of the things I like most about games that are really well done is when they do a good job of integrating story and gameplay. The fact that you literally grow stronger by killing people is a story thing in KOTOR 2. The fact that everyone around you follows you so naturally is a story thing in KOTOR 2. The fact that you can affect your party members to change their alignment is a story thing in KOTOR 2. Now I say all of that because most of those things in most other RPGs, Western, JRPG, doesn't matter, are gameplay things. There are usually reasons why some of those things happen, but for the most part, it's just because it's the game. They're in the party because they're in the party. They're doing what you say because you're the player, right? But in here, all of that was woven into the nature of being the black hole that is the exile. The wound that walks around, who never really reattached to the Force, and instead just kind of artificially uses the Force by effectively draining it from those around them. For the record, my canon exile uh, was female, for anybody curious, but... I just thought <laughs> thought I'd mention that. I actually ended up playing with a mod this time that allowed me to be female and effectively qualify as a male playthrough, so I would get Brianna and, you know. Anyways. <clears throat> I mention all of this because this is not only clever in its own right, but also kind of helps to give agency to why something like a wound is so dangerous, because, well, you yourself can decide how you play. You can be cartoonishly evil, you can be incredibly good, and you can be several grades in between. It's not quite to the, the variable of gradient like, say, Dragon Age Origins has, or uh, Alpha Protocol, that's another one I played recently. But you still have a lot of option and agency in how you play your character uh, along these two extremes and the kind of middle ground there. And I mention that because it helps to show just how bad, good, or in between a wound can really be and why a wound would be a significant problem for this kind of a setting. Because ultimately a wound is something that more or less requires control. Otherwise you have Nihilus. Nihilus is someone who has effectively totally lost control. There's no person, no real sentience and sapience is really driving that person. Even though he has intellect and the capacity for speech, he is effectively nothing more than an instinctual monster at this point in time. The Exile, even if they go full evil, is not, and has the ability to be many other things, depending on how they present themselves and how the player plays them. I mentioned something earlier. I kind of want to bring it up here. So I had a bug one of my times playing through this, and to this day I don't understand what was causing this bug. So I mentioned how your actions can change your party's alignment. Well, if you're not aware, their, their visuals change too, so they look kind of normal if they're full light. But if they go full black, then they'll be like, and they'll have like the veins showing, their eyes will be kind of messed up, and their skin will kind of go milky, right? I mentioned that because I had a bug once where their alignment would change in between dialogue options. So it would be like, you'd, you'd see Atten, he'd be like, hey, what's going on here? Oh, nothing much, what's going on? And it would cut back to Atten, and suddenly he'd be full dark side. And his dialogue wouldn't change. He would just be full dark side Atten. And then it would cut back to me, and then he'd be dark side at, and then it would cut back to me. And then he would still be light side at, just full. Like, like all the way from 100 to negative 100. Just bam, like that. It was the weirdest damn thing I'd ever seen. I like to think of the exile who was just really hungry that day. He was just like, yeah. But no discussion about KOTOR 2 would be complete without talking about Kreia. Darth Treya, the betrayer. Let me go ahead and just start by saying... But there must always be a Darth Traya. No, um, and, and tell EA Torpedoes that idea. There, <laughs> I do like Kreia. Let's make this very clear. I also know that I'm about to make a lot of people hate me, 
but I don't think she's the best thing since sliced bread. I, I, I mention that because I know several people who think she's the best villain in fiction, the best villain in, in Star Wars, the best Force user in Star Wars, that she's just super amazingly awesome. In fact, there's a video that I have been linked to probably about two dozen times, which is the, the analysis of Darth Kreia, right? I'm sure most of you have actually seen that as well. My own take on Kreia is far less profound. She is someone who is broken because she uses the Force excessively and relies on it at a crutch while preaching that you shouldn't do that. She is someone who believes firmly in pragmatism. As I mentioned, she and Candras actually have a significant similarity here because she believes that you should be specific and precise. Don't just be good for good's sake and don't just be bad for bad sake. Be precise to the moment. The difference is, ironically, Candras would probably be the more morally inclined of the two, whereas Kreia doesn't really care about much of anything, or maybe she does. I, I would like, by the way, to hear your guys' thoughts on Kreia, since she is a very interpretive character, and everything I'm saying is just my own interpretation of her. I look at her as someone who looks at the galaxy as a whole, and ultimately really legitimately hates the system. The system of the Force, and the system of how it has such a significant influence on everything and everyone. And that hatred is self-compounded by the fact that she acknowledges that she cannot fix that, especially not with the tools at her disposal. That she became so attached to the exile, almost entirely and specifically because of the fact that she believed that the exile would be able to do what she could not, would be able to find what she could not. Because the biggest flaw for Kreia in her own mind and to herself is the fact that she never came up with a solution. Killing the Force? Well, several people have said that her goal is to kill the Force, and that's probably true, but at the same time, it's actually incredibly wrong. Because Kreia doesn't want to kill the Force, Kreia wants to remove the Force from the equation. And there is a distinction between those two things. And the fact that she was never able to figure out how to remove the Force from the equation without killing is part of her mentality. And the fact that she feels the exile might be the key. Nihilus obviously wasn't. He was just going to be a black hole of end of death. But there needs to be some way to get the Force out of our lives. To make it so that we can actually exist and be regardless of some cosmic will. Now, this is again getting very interpretive. But for me, this lines up perfectly with how I view the Force. That the light side is extremely passive and that the dark side is extremely aggressive. You know, order versus chaos if you prefer or uh, in, uh, stagnation versus change, if you want to put it in a different light. Because one of the things that's shown many times in Star Wars, especially in KOTOR 2, since we're talking about this one, is that the more you are one way or another, the more it feeds on you. And it kind of creates that feedback loop. So someone who uses the light side excessively becomes excessively light side. We see this in Vrook, just to use a direct example, but most of the other Jedi Masters, to some extent or another, have this problem. If you use the dark side excessively, well, then it feedback loops in the dark side. It makes you a horrible person that way. I mean, we see dozens of examples of that across all of Star Wars. The idea here, of course, is that both of these are basically wrong. But more to the point, both of these are an external influence on yourself. That if you delve too heavily one way or the other, the seesaw... I mean, there's a reason I call that seesaw effect, right? The more you lean towards the light side the more you lean towards the light side. 
and that implies in many ways an external impression, maybe a conscious will, maybe just an implication or a concept, which is pushing you towards certain mentalities, influencing, changing you, altering you. And this is, in my opinion, what Kreia is fighting against, removing the very substance of influence from the Force without removing the substance of life from the Force. I was very nervous about this rumination because you know, it's, it's a long-standing game with a lot to talk about. And I, of course, missed many, many things. But, I mean, I did do a lore run, if you want to ever go through that. For now, all I can say is thank you for joining me. And I'll see you next time.